1: Live from our nation's capital.
2: All talk here in Washington, D.C. turns to President-elect Joe Biden's administration. Historically speaking, the markets have performed better when there is divided government. The biggest pressure for physical stimulus is an uptick in cases. Bloomberg,
1: sound off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights.
2: Biden has promised again
3: and again that he will unite the country. State governments control elections that's in the Constitution.
1: I think that we can expect a smooth, thoughtful, methodical transition. This is is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio.
2: The latest from the Senate, Eric Wasson gives us a full congressional briefing. This, as the transition team continues to try to make inroads on how to disseminate the vaccine. A lot to get through. The big story tonight, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell closing off chances that the Senate would pass anytime soon a House bill that would give most Americans $2,000 stimulus checks. The Kentucky Republicans said that the House legislation approved in a bipartisan vote has no realistic path to quick passage in the Senate and that it falls short of the demands of President Donald Trump. I'm reading from the Bloomberg Terminal from Eric Wasson's report. Eric joins me now. Eric, what is in terms of next for the for for when this might actually get to fruition? Is, is it now officially over, uh, and, and we'll have to wait for a Biden administration?
4: I think that's probably a safe bet. You know, McConnell's really putting his foot down here despite President Trump saying this would be a death wish for Republicans to reject this idea. Uh, you know, We're really not seeing any enthusiasm. I think one of the tactical mistakes House Democrats did was in designing this bill, uh, they made it so that at least some small payments would be able to go to people who make six figures. And uh, this is something that Republicans are really laying into, McConnell saying where well, they are not going to be bullied into giving money to Democrats' rich friends. We have uh, John Cornyn just now saying it's not targeted, it's going, it's, it's a waste of money to give people who, you know, haven't lost income and are making six figures. So that's really coming at a sort of a, a, a point of contention that Republicans can exploit and basically say, well, we, we'd have to mull this or look for something more targeted. Uh, the other thing that McConnell made clear was he wants to combine, uh, you know, President Trump's drive to uh, investigate voter fraud as well as to roll back, uh, you know, Facebook and Twitter's liability protections into one bill. And Democrats say, well, that's just nonsense. That's going to be something we can't support. So, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's basically dead. Uh, in the Senate
2: right now. We've got sound on that from coming from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Take a listen to Leader McConnell.
5: The Democrats have tried to warp what President Trump actually laid out. The Senate is not going to split apart the three issues that President Trump linked together just because Democrats are afraid to address two of them.
2: Democrats, in terms of the messaging, Eric, were able to get out front of this. But what I've heard in the past 24 hours is, is precisely what Leader McConnell just said, which was President Trump wanted... Both Section Two Thirty Two repealed, and for there to be additional two thousand dollars stimulus checks, that's exactly what Leader McConnell gave him.
4: Well, right, but uh, you know, Trump wasn't so specific as saying it has to be in the same bill, and that I needed to have them all in the same bill. Or, I wouldn't but you sign
2: know, it. I'm going to step in here. You know, Leader McConnell is a political chess player, and he is giving President Trump exactly what he asked for. Even if he wasn't, if you're going to ask for it via tweet, well, leader McConnell said, okay, if that's what you want, here's a bill proposing based upon your tweet. I mean, it was in a way political chessmanship. I don't know if chessmanship's a word. Go ahead, Eric. Well,
4: right. And, I, I mean, Chuck, Chuck Schumer pointed out in a statement on this. He says, you know, McConnell knows how to pass the bill and he knows how to kill the bill. And this is how how you would kill it. I mean, putting it, even though the bill just creates a commission to study in 90 days allegations of voter fraud, Democrats really can't vote for that because it just legitimizes what Trump has been saying, that there's something, some massive fraud problem that needs to be looked into. Maybe Biden's not a legitimately elected president. Uh, you know, we see uh, uh, you know Josh Hawley now r- raising objections isn't going to cause a lengthy debate on January 6th over this issue. So putting that in the bill just makes it so toxic that it wouldn't get Democratic support. It wouldn't, you know, probably get more than a handful of votes. So, yes, you're right. It's very clever, uh, you know, uh, and it was something that McConnell promised to Trump, apparently, uh, over the weekend to get him to sign the $900 billion release bill that he was holding up. And here we are. Uh, The $200,000 checks is really going nowhere.
2: Remarkably clever. We've got more sound on coming from Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. Here's her reaction to the political maneuverings of Leader McConnell.
0: The president of the United States has expressed his support for the $2,000. The Democrats and Republicans in the House have passed that legislation. Who is holding up that distribution to the American people? Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans.
2: So, I, I mean... To take an outsider's perspective for a second, it's quite remarkable that Congress as a whole took so long to pass any type of economic stimulus, and then in the final weeks, both sides saying, finger-pointing and saying, well, we could have gotten more if they didn't do this, or we could have had this if they didn't do that.
4: Well, sure. I mean, that's something that Congress is very good at. But I think the rubber really meets the road with the Georgia runoffs that are coming on January 6th, a lot of this positioning. Uh, Ahead of that vote, will determine uh, control of the Senate, and we really saw a remarkable flip from uh, David Perdue and and Kelly Loeffler. Perdue has has long been the one of the leading budget hawks in the Senate, uh, and had resisted endorsing the $2,000 checks idea. Came out in favor of it, just realizing the political heat he was getting and the need to try to to win over voters. uh, And what you know, if polls are to be believed, is is a super tight uh, race against uh, John Ossoff. So you know, we'll we'll see uh, how this all plays. Out, but I think we have to keep in mind McConnell is preventing this vote uh, from happening in part because it's just too politically risky. If you do, if you hold this vote, and you divide the conference. You're going to alienate some part of the Republican voter base, either the Trump supporters who like the idea of $2,000 checks, or uh, you know the donors and others who are in the party who don't want to see you know deficit spending on the order of $500 billion dollars. Uh, so, you know, this is something, uh, you know, a lot of people are pointing out is that Republicans are trying to, to really get on a deficit hawk footing with the Biden administration coming in. They want to get consistent on their messaging to prevent Biden from being able to pass large, uh, you know, spending bills. And uh, this this whole Trump push is sort of messing with that. So they're, they're looking to head to the future to Biden and sort of sidestepping uh, Trump's demands at this point.
2: Meanwhile, Senator Josh Hawley really emerging as someone who is trying to inherit the president's political uh, uh, rhetoric policies. What can you tell us about his movements today in the Senate with regards to the January 6th certification of the electoral college vote?
4: You, You know, Uh, Some people say this is just a formality on January 6th, and in many ways it is, but it's also the first vote in many ways in the 2024 primary. You know, this is Hawley uh, saying, you know, he's raising objections that there might be some voter fraud or irregularities. He doesn't necessarily have evidence before us right now, so maybe he's going to present that. But that was a key decision because it allows a group of House Republicans who are already saying they're going to object to actually force votes in the Senate and House on the certification of certain states Uh, electoral. Votes. Now, these are doomed to fail because the House is going to have to agree and there's no way Nancy Pelosi's House is going to go along with delegitimizing or, or ending the Biden uh, uh, candidacy here. But, you know, at least it gives positioning for Hawley, who was trying to, you know, be- become the Trump, uh, you know, mantle uh, candidate uh, in 2024. So it'll be interesting to see if others uh, come out. Ted Cruz is clearly also positioning for those Trump supporters. He uh, had promised that he would argue a case if it got before the Supreme Court. On a voter fraud, uh, you know, uh, we'll see how Tom Cotton, another one who's looking for those votes, uh, will do as well. Uh, you know, and of course, we have uh, others who are thinking perhaps of 2024, whether it's Mitt Romney or Chris Christie, are looking for the uh, the non-Trump voter to try to take back the party. So it's an interesting uh, early salvo in what will probably be a contentious GOP primary, uh, especially if Trump does not run for real, uh, for, for election again. When uh, do we expect to
2: get? the timing for January 6th on when precisely that certification will happen?
4: Well, you know, uh, we were asking how many states. So basically each state you can have two hours of debate and a vote. So let's say they're going to object to Pennsylvania, which is what Holly said in this statement. Well, that's two hours. Is he going to do six uh, or seven states, if so, it could be you know, a 12-, 14-hour ordeal uh, you know, for everyone to, to go through before uh, the final certification happens and could come uh, well in the middle of the now, night. Now, can
2: only the senators from those states object, or can anyone object to any of the states?
4: Uh, anyone can object. So Hawley is, in fact, saying he's going to object to Pennsylvania's uh, procedures. And they get uh, two
2: hours total or two hours per objection?
4: Uh, per state. So wow. they can debate Pennsylvania. Could for be hundred
2: out. It could be fifty times two. It could be hundred. <laughs> well,
4: yeah, but I think there's really six states that are really you know they've focused on you know Wisconsin and Arizona, Nevada. It's gonna be it's gonna be that a lot
2: direction. of it's gonna be a lot of interesting dynamics. But we'll see uh, if they
4: can uh, if they can organize it. I mean, Mo Brooks, who is organizing uh, in the House, says he's trying to get you know seventy-two uh, you know uh, different uh, speeches organized. But we'll see if he can pull it together.
2: It'll be remarkable. And Eric, I know that you will be busy for us uh, all next week. Eric Wasson, Bloomberg Congressional Reporter. Such incredible reporting, Eric. Congratulations on a great year, and thank you for your coverage. We'll check in with you next week. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. Coming up next, we check in on what happened in the markets, and coming up later on in the next hour, Congressman Denver Riggleman. You don't want to miss that interview. You're listening to Bloomberg 991.
1: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
2: I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, wishing you and your family and your friends a safe, happy and healthy new year. And also the acknowledgement of how difficult this year has been for so many millions of Americans and acknowledging that as we move through toward the end of the year, all of us hoping that 2021 will bring some type of fresh start, new start, new beginning, Turn the page. New chapter. Whatever you want to call it. Let's just get 2020 over with. Am I right? First, though, let's dive into what happened in the markets today because U.S. stocks climbed with small cap shares outperforming in one of the final trading sessions of 2020. It's almost over, folks. I promise. The dollar continued its slide, weakening to the lowest in two and a half years, Automakers were among the best performers as the S&P 500 index edged higher, while the Russell 2000 gauge of smaller companies rallied about 1% for its biggest gain in almost two weeks. This is important. Travel and leisure companies rose in Europe after the UK approved a coronavirus shot by AstraZeneca and the University of Oxford, offsetting pessimism sparked by a slower than planned rollout of shots in the United States. Joining me now is Eric Wiener, Bloomberg Markets Live Team leader and the author of two books. I don't know where he found time to write two books. Two books about Wall Street, what goes up, and the shadow market. Eric, I do want to ask you about your writing habits, but first I want to follow up on what happened in the markets today.
5: Sure. Uh, Well, you know, it's sort of um – if you want to talk about turning a page, as you were saying,
2: I'm all uh, about turning are, the page. Go ahead.
5: <laughs> you're all about turning the page. <laughs> we all, well, the markets are too. I mean, you, you, You talked about the small caps thing, and you talked about the the travel and leisure, cars. Uh, The assumption is that there's going to be money to spend. Um, It was interesting. We saw it. emerging market stocks went up uh, a lot and are at the highest that they've been since 2007. And that's stuff that you buy when you're feeling good about the global economy. It it does really well when people feel comfortable taking risks. So we're seeing that across a bunch of aspects. Assets, uh, precious metals, bunch of different places, and the market is kind of assuming that things will get better eventually. Um, but you know, we're all kind of you know gripped you know gripped for what's coming next.
2: So, meanwhile, I find this fascinating that this narrative has emerged: the market narrative, the Washington narrative, that there have been fewer vaccines than anticipated for the rollout here but there's been 2 million plus vaccines already in the United States. I I guess I find that a little bit confusing because there's only been like 4 million worldwide in the 16 developed countries that have started administering them. There was never, I mean, I go back to March, no one said that there would be snap our fingers, clap our hands, wave a magic wand, and everyone's vaccinated. Are the markets forgetting that, or are they just, I, I don't understand that.
4: Well, but
5: what you see now, to be honest with you, I think actually the markets understand that. Um, But what you're seeing right now is a lot of people aren't in. It's pretty thin. You know, it's like holiday time. So you see these exaggerated moves and, you know, a lot of different things bubble up. But in general, anything involving vaccines sends stuff up. Um, send, well, sends bonds down, sends stock up, sends things that are that people buy when they're feeling good up. So vaccines are definitely, you know, the reason why people feel good. I think you have this nervousness about what's to come for the next, you know, two to three months. But I, I the market, I think, just in terms of positioning, appears to be expecting, you know, the middle of, of next year. You know, June, July, kind of being the time when things start kicking in and real. You know, we return to a bit of normalcy, and and that I don't think you know is unrealistic.
2: So, but what in terms of what more clarity does do the markets need on the U.S. vaccination front? What are they looking for in terms of that would provide for them some more clarity about the direction of it?
5: You need. They're going to need to know that beyond the first wave is getting vaccinated. So you, what we hear a lot about is like, sure, we're getting and, – and it's absolutely necessary. You know, we're getting the, um, the front-line workers get, are getting vaccinated. Uh, you know, the elderly and people who are very much at risk are getting vaccinated. But it won't be until you get into the general population – that people will start sensing that things are returning to normal because that's when you'll start going back to the office. That's when kids will go to school or camp. You know, that's when the, the broad workings of the economy sort of kick in. So, like, in terms of is Wall Street or is the market impressed with what's gone on with vaccines, everything that involves vaccines is kind of amazing to everybody. But in terms of what it needs to see, it needs to get into that second layer where people who are normal workers, you know, the guys who are going to be at restaurants, the you know, waiters and cooks and all that sort of stuff, uh, and the people who are at hotels and all that are vaccinated, too. Uh, when that starts happening and businesses can start returning to normal, that's when, the, you know, you start seeing the enthusiasm kick in.
2: Eric Wiener, Bloomberg Markets Live team leader, author of two books about Wall Street, What Goes Up, and secondly, The Shadow Market. Do you write in silence or with music?
5: I write it with noise. Um, I actually wrote both books with NPR in the background because oh, I, I don't
2: know if t- can you say that Christine Baratta, of- oh, our sorry. executive producer do we have oh, like no. a button okay,
5: So the reason is because you can tune it out it's sort of uh, like you can't this.
2: tune Kev out am I right am I, I right
5: tune you out no I could never tune this out that's I, what I'm saying but you could actually I can go for four straight hours and it's essentially white noise so
1: I fall asleep like, to white
2: noise I cannot sleep without it. white noise I can't, I'm t- I can't do it anymore I have to have white noise on in the background yeah. but what about music do you can you can you write to music
5: um no because i start getting distracted i i do notes to music like i do research to music and all that what's I'm the best sitting down to write I, what's the I best
2: music to research to
5: Oh, I, I am very, like, uh, much more alternative type stuff, so i listened listen to it. Like, during my first book, it was a lot of the Super Furry Animals and Pavement, if that's okay.
2: used. <laughs> the second Let's book queue it up.
5: The Replacements. I, I have the, this replacement set, um, so I went through all of that. Speaking
2: of replacements, the EU is signing a trade deal mm. with China. Are they trying mm-hmm. to replace the United States?
5: Um, no. I mean, look, they've been talking about doing this for a while. I think that um, Trump made a big deal out of it. And really what it means is that, I mean, if you look at the amount of trade that they do with the EU, it's incredible. Um, But we're still right in the middle of all this. I think it's, it's more about this is kind of the EU cajoling us to get involved again. Uh, and I think that the market and you know most economists I speak to expect that from the Biden administration.
2: What are they expecting the first step will be for the United States in terms of trade policy? Well,
5: that's hard because you have a lot of like a lot of what Trump did with with China gives Biden a lot of chips. So, you know, if you don't really care that much about the tariffs, but it kind of annoys China, then it's what do I want from you that would help with, you know, that I could release these tariffs and that would help me. And I think most of that on the Biden side would probably be intellectual property. Um, You know, all that that stuff, which was really a big deal before Trump. Um, then it became the trade deficit and stuff. But I think it's going to be more about intellectual property protections and things like that. And then also geopolitical stuff, you know, um, dealing with the, with all the countries in South Asia and whatnot.
2: You think writing books is on my mind? Should you write in the morning or the evening? What's the best time I'm to I'm
5: a night guy. I am, <laughs> like, I sleep... And this was part of the problem with writing the books of my wife um, because she's very much a morning person. So I would often, like, literally be going to bed as she was getting up. Um, because I would write until four, you know, five in the morning, times to see sunlight, and then, you know, like, wake up at noon. Um, so yeah, I just, my life gets all turned around when I'm doing books.
2: You know what? It's all worth it. Eric Weiner, Bloomberg Markets live team leader and the author of two books about Wall Street, What Goes Up and The Shadow Market. I could talk to Eric forever. Thanks so much, Eric, for, uh, for breaking all of that down for us. Oh, and talking about the markets too. Uh, coming up next, we check in with Congressman Denver Riggleman. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99. one.
1: Live from our nation's capital.
2: All talk here in Washington, D.C. turns to President-elect Joe Biden's administration. Historically speaking, the markets have performed better when there is divided government. The biggest pressure for physical stimulus is an uptick in cases.
1: Bloomberg, sound off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights.
2: Biden has
3: promised again and again that he will unite the country. State governments control elections. That's in the Constitution. I
1: think that we can expect a smooth, thoughtful, methodical transition. This is... Bloomberg Sound on with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio.
2: Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell closes the door on a vote combining Section Two Hundred and Thirty as well as Two Thousand Dollar stimulus checks. Meanwhile, outgoing now Congressman Denver Riggleman with a warning akin to George Washington's parting parting remarks when he was President of the United States, and it was made on the House floor. The congressman checks in with us, but a lot to get through. And I got to say, if you're in your car on your way home from work or if you're working from home or you're in an office, make sure you look up at the sky right now. The sunset coming out of the nation's capital is absolutely stunning for what has been a very difficult year. I got to say, we've been incredibly I've I've been incredibly blessed to be able to look at these sunrises and sunsets in the in the uh, last couple of days. I sent a picture to my father just the other day. Uh, On the morning, I went up to the roof of our building here in the downtown Washington, D.C. Bureau, and I said, Dad! Via text. You got to look at this sunrise over the Capitol. I mean, it was just absolutely remarkable. Got to look at the little things, right? Got to look at the little things. We begin tonight with the big story. No, not my text to my father, but the big story with regards to stimulus. As Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has officially closed the door now on $2,000 stimulus checks. This despite the urging coming from Democrats. We've got sounds on that from Leader McConnell. Take a listen.
5: The Democrats have tried to warp what President Trump actually laid out. The Senate is not going to split apart the three issues that President Trump linked together just because Democrats are afraid to address two of them.
2: Speaker Pelosi says that Republicans had the opportunity to vote on $2,000 checks.
0: The president of the United States has expressed his support for the $2,000. The Democrats and Republicans in the House have passed that legislation. Who is holding up that distribution to the American people? Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans.
2: Drew Littman is policy director at Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, and Shrek, the former chief of staff for Senator Al Franken and the former policy director for Senator Barbara Boxer. Ash Wright is a senior vice president at FSB Core Strategies and a senior political advisor to George P. Bush. Ash, thank you for being here. You know, I, I got to be honest with you, Leader McConnell... In- in lumping together a bill that would establish a 90-day type of commission to investigate the integrity of the elections, as well as to repeal parts of Section 230 and have the $2,000 stimulus checks. This was exactly what President Trump tweeted. And Leader McConnell said, if you're going to do this last minute, this is your opportunity. Did Leader McConnell know what he was doing, I guess?
3: Yeah, I mean— I think for him, he does. Uh, I don't think it was a you know the best thing for the party, um, for the country. I think he should have given the two thousand dollar checks. I think that would have helped Republicans in Georgia. Um, but you know it, it's you know the typical D.C. lockdown, and I think is what he's really trying to do is he's trying to use the uh, he's trying to get the defense bill passed without the section two thirty. And the tech groups there, and then use these two thousand dollars stimulus checks to really have his battle against the tech companies. Uh, but I think ultimately, it's just going to hurt Republicans um, as we, you know, as we go into an election in Georgia and then into a long winter break where Congress won't be in session and able to pass it at all.
2: Ash, let me follow up here before I bring in Drew. From your perspective, as as someone who is in Texas and and an influencer within the Republican Party. Who? What's your? What's the? What's the read in your part of the party right now about heading into Georgia with Leader McConnell and President Trump having what many are describing as some type of political stare down? Do both lose? Does any anyone win?
3: Yeah, I mean it's it's tough to say here in Georgia. I mean it's a you know it's a true swing state. I think Dems are leading here as of today, but I think ultimately the Republicans will prevail here. It will just be by uh, you know by half a point versus the you know three and a half four percent that they should win by on election day. But yeah, I mean I think ultimately this is the problem with our party and what Leffler and Purdue are having to deal with on these campaigns is. Navigate a party that is essentially lost, and and we don't know who our leader is. It's the party's having a debate whether we stay with Donald Trump, move on from Donald Trump, and where the where is this kind of is there going to be a new big tent that includes everybody, or are we going to section off and silo off and kind of stay in our far right and, and middle of the road uh, different segments of the party, which is where we're at now, which has been part of the problem that we've had through the course of the Trump years. Is We don't really know what it means to be a Republican or a member of the Republican Party anymore. And so hopefully, you know, I think that I think that ultimately we'll be successful. I'm actually here in Georgia today. So I think ultimately we'll be successful here in Georgia. Um, And then the party's going to have a long, tough four years to figure out where we, we actually go from here.
2: We're going to talk much more about Georgia coming up in in a minute. Drew, come in here. uh, Just as that's what's happening on the Republican side. But meanwhile, for Democrats, uh, there's been uh, quite an open debate about just how Speaker Pelosi will be governing once President-elect Biden does, in fact, take uh, take office. But the past week has been really focused on Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Drew. Uh,
6: it, It has indeed. And I think Pelosi faces challenges on multiple fronts. Looking at this uh, politically, uh, she's got to preserve her frontline members because she really has a tiny working majority, and midterms generally are unfavorable to the party that holds the White House. This is maybe different because we have split government if the Republicans retain control of the Senate, but generally they're harder on the party that they see being in control, which means Pelosi will really face a hard time keeping a Democratic majority. For the third and fourth year of Joe Biden's first term,
2: and and even as that happens, I, the the Democrats who are running in Georgia are Drew are are much more moderate than perhaps even the Senator Bernie Sanders Sanders crowd would like.
6: That's true, but there there's also uh, probably more liberal than past recent past Georgia. Senate candidates. Last Georgia Democrat was Max Cleland. Um, Michelle Nunn, the daughter of former Senator Sam Nunn, ran a pretty good campaign a a while back. But they were more conservative than Warnock and Ossoff, who were running, I think, pretty much as progressives. They're certainly not running like their AOC. uh, But for Georgia, I think they're running pretty progressive campaigns.
2: Meanwhile, uh, uh, all of this comes at a time in which, uh, Ash, as you correctly pointed out, the Defense Authorization Act, uh, uh, top of the mind for Republicans uh, and for someone like Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, he was he was forced to look at the political play clock. And say these are all of the competing interests, and no doubt, from a national security perspective, uh, the defense authorization bill was so incredibly important, and and his hand was forced in many ways by the president's tweets in the last week on the two thousand dollars stimulus checks. But at the end of the day, this is the first time that a, that a President Trump's veto is going to be overridden quickly, Ash.
3: Yeah, I mean, look, it, I think it's a it's a clear fact that Donald Trump is now a lame duck and people are starting to look long term at their political plays. And this is the first maneuver in that. Um, and, and that's exactly what this is. Mitch McConnell knows that he has to have a defense spending act. He cannot go home to his state or send anyone else home to their states without funding the military, have multiple months without being able to pay military members. And so it's, it's kind of a political play to say, hey, look, I lose more capital by by not funding the military than the political capital that I lose by not giving two thousand dollars stimulus check. So it's clear that he chose to prioritize, yeah, um, the military spending. Yep. so you know, it's, but look, it's a it's a clear lame duck maneuver against the sitting president.
2: All right, stay right there, Ashright, Drew Lippmann. Like my dad always tells me, keep doing what you're doing, and you'll be doing it. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg ninety nine one.
1: You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
2: I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Coming up, Congressman Denver Riggleman. You don't want to miss that. He is an outgoing congressman, and he's been very, very chatty about the future of the Republican Party. Drew Littman's still with me. Ash writes with me as well. Ash, uh, how's George P. Bush doing?
3: He's great. He's great. Uh, you know, gearing up, trying to figure out what we're going to do for 2022, obviously keeping all of our options open, but, um, you know, but and then working hard for the great citizens of the state of
2: Texas. It'll be interesting to see. I got to say, no matter what, and maybe I'm biased, Ash, I'm never going to root for the Dallas Cowboys. I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> I know, and and I I just feel like every time you come on the show, I have to own it because otherwise, you know, I just I get I get nervous, you know. I, I don't want anyone to feel well, like I'm. Go ahead.
3: Well, I only root for the Dallas Cowboys, so it's I don't sad. know what that says about me. You that and my I boss walk away. And I know
2: you it. and my boss Craig Gordon, and you guys ripped my heart out and ended our playoff chances, and I don't even want to talk about it. Moving on. Uh, Drew Littman, uh, a huge developing story that I think many people are carefully monitoring for the incoming Biden administration is on geopolitics and, and precisely how the Biden administration will deal with China. And and I bring this up because you, as the former chief of staff to Senator Al Franken, know so much about the important trade deals, uh, and of course the former policy director for Senator Barbara Boxer, about how trade deals impact uh, constituents like former Senator Franken's and and Barbara Boxer's constituents. The EU signs a trade deal with China in a period of transition for the United States administration's. How should the incoming Biden administration react to that?
6: Well, I think the Biden administration is going to have to assess a lot of last minute activity by the Trump administration, and this is part of this review. I think they're going to look at national security implications. They're going to look at, as you suggest, constituent implications. They're going to look at the U.S.'s relationship with the EU, although the U.S. wouldn't have been a party to that agreement, they want to be on the same—Biden the, uh, will want us to be on the same page as EU leaders in dealing with China, because if we are divided, China will leverage us against each other, the EU and U.S. roughly—to roughly equal size trade markets with a lot of the same assets, resources, and needs. So— you need multilateral, I think, coordination, and you need multilateral defense coordination, with which Trump, didn't, Trump affirmatively undercut, um, but which is an important part of the way that we deal with China.
2: And so, and, and Ash, come in here because in Texas is so heavily impacted by the trade negotiations of the, uh, current administration. And in fact, there have been some Republicans in the Republican party who are, who are a bit apprehensive in terms of how, uh, the president, uh, utilized, uh, some, some national security declarations in terms of the, in terms of the trade debate. I mean, what are, are you, or how are Republicans in the state of Texas, for example, uh, are they optimistic? Or are they pessimistic about what a Biden administration will need for trade?
3: Well, I mean, I think ultimately they're optimistic. I mean, I, I think that's right in the sense that the economy in Texas boomed, except for our trade and oil and gas and our ports along the coast, um, all struggled under his foreign policies because of decisions that he made. And so I think it's optimistic to get back to some of the policies that that were in place under the Obama administration. I don't know about all of them, but I definitely think there's more optimism than pessimism, at least among the the business community in those areas.
2: All right. Switching gears, we have to talk about a huge major development that has emerged, and it's something that we do deserve uh, to talk about. And that is not just what's happening in Georgia, but the day after. Because January 6th, of course, is when the Senate will... Uh, ratify the electoral college results. And uh, as we got an outline of from my colleague, Eric Wasson, Bloomberg congressional reporter in the last hour, it's it, 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 it really could prove to be a political theatrical moment on January 6th. But Senator Josh Hawley has already said that he is looking to, to deliver some type of floor speech that could last up to two hours. Per state. But there's only a handful of states that that the president is questioning. And that could really put the spotlight on 2024 Republican candidates, Ash, including people like Senator Ted Cruz, Vice President Mike Pence, Senator Josh Hawley, Marco Rubio. The list goes on and on. Tom Cotton, Mitt Romney. I mean, it it really is shaping up to be the, the first dynamic starting mark of 2024. What are you going to be looking for as a Republican insider?
3: Yeah, I mean, look. I hope ultimately um, there will be a few detractors like Holly, but I think ultimately, and I, I hope ultimately for our party, we, you know, we accept the results of the election and and just kind of use this as a moment to move on. Um, you know, I, I mean, look, making two-hour speeches on the floor isn't going to change the final vote, and so to me, it just it, it doesn't seem like they're actually gaining anything. I mean, maybe the grandstanding politically. Helps you, but it doesn't help us as a party. And and I think really what we need is to to pass that, figure out, or I guess accept the vote, um, and then really figure out whether Trump has any future plans to run in 2024. I think the party split on whether he would, you know, continue to have his support. And and I think some people who voted for him a lot, like myself, I was a big Trump supporter. But but honestly, at this point, I think I'm ready to move on um, and see what's there for the future of our party. And so. Yeah, I I hope that's what happens, Um, and I think there'll be some grandstanding, but ultimately, you know, Joe Biden will be president on January 20th.
2: We've got sounds on this topic coming from uh, the transition uh, team briefing of the Biden administration. Here's Jen Psaki.
0: This is merely a formality. Uh, It certainly should be treated as such um, by people who are uh, covering it, and uh, regardless of whatever antics anyone is up to on January 6th, uh, President-elect Biden will be sworn in
2: on the 20th. Drew Lipman, do you think the incoming administration is doing everything that they can to uh, move through this? I think
0: that the
6: incoming administration has actually played this pretty intelligently. And I think they've done the kind of conventional work that you can do without the cooperation of the outgoing administration, like naming a cabinet, demonstrating that you have a cabinet that represents America. Now talking about getting 100 vaccinations in 100 days once uh, Biden is president, that sort of thing where they're proceeding as if it's a foregone conclusion. Legally, it is, but not getting down in the mud with Trump and even with people like Hawley on a daily basis.
2: All right, we're going to have to leave it there. My sincerest gratitude to Drew Littman, policy director at Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, and Shrek, and former chief of staff to Senator Ralph Rankin, and of course to Ash Wright, a Dallas Cowboys fan, but a senior vice president at FSB Core Strategies and senior political advisor to George P. Bush. Tell George to come on and talk with us, Ash. Uh, Happy New Year to both of you and your families. Much more coming up next with Congressman Denver Riggleman. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
1: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
2: My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. After nearly 20 years serving in politics, the politician, before he returned home to his home in Mount Vernon, decided to write a letter to constituents his friends and fellow citizens before leaving office. Of course, I'm talking about general George Washington uh, having served two terms in the presidency. And he published the letter in one of America's first daily newspapers dubbed the American daily advertiser, which was actually the publisher was John Dunlap, who was one of the publishers that helped mass publicize the declaration of independence. And, it's been now known in the history books as George Washington's farewell address in which he warns against foreign interference and, of course, against political parties. I'll read now from our first president's first a portion of it, uh, a, a line that, that really feels important, as Tom Keene would always tell me, in, the, in this era. He writes of political parties, they serve to organize faction to give it an artificial and extraordinary force to put in the place of the delegated will of the nation, the will of a party, often a small but artful and enterprising minority of the community, and, according to the alternate triumphs of different parties, to make the public administration the mirror of the ill-concerted and incongruous projects of faction, rather than the organ of consistent and wholesome plans digested by common councils and modified by mutual interests. Earlier this month, on December 10th, Congressman Denver Riggleman made the following remarks on the House floor in his farewell address.
7: My two decades of intelligence, warfighting, and counterterrorism experience coupled with serving in the 116th Congress is why I will not allow conspiracy peddlers to hijack our ability to conduct reasonable policy discussions for the betterment of all Americans. Just like creating a vaccine to eradicate COVID-19, we must work together to inoculate against the social contagion of disinformation, conspiracies, anti-Semitism, dehumanization, racism, deep state cabal, nonsense, cults, and those grifters posing as servants of the people.
2: Congressman Denver Riggleman joins us now. And Congressman, I have to say, just in the last uh, couple of weeks, the Appomattox County Republican Committee passed a resolution of censure against you for the remarks that you've been making and the warning that you've been making with regards to those sentiments that you conducted on the House floor. Your reaction?
7: Oh, I... um. You know, thanks, Kevin. My reaction when I saw the censorship and what they were actually censoring me for actually does harken back to what you read from George Washington. It's the factions, it's the parties that pollute real discourse between individuals. And the fact is, is much of that, and, you know, what's scary about this is much of that resolution to censor me was based on. Fantasy. It was based on conspiracy theories. It was based on directed disinformation. And I find it interesting that the very thing I thought that people should be applauded for, which is fighting for the American people on a facts based basis, where we're doing what's right on the information that is real and verifiable and concrete is the thing that, you know, Kevin, over the last two years has got me in the most trouble. And I think we have to have a time now that we fight. We fight for the American republic in a way that these sort of social media contagion, this this digital disease that we have is eradicated through almost a digital inoculation. Uh, facts based analysis machine learning right and the ability for public trust companies to highlight the evil that we see out there and and kevin i I, you know what i am going to keep being me and as far as the censorship from county committees i have many of them Uh, i'll hang them on my wall with pride because i think that is really what defines me is that if i'm willing to get censured for using facts i think that sort of separates me from a lot of politicians
2: I'm reading from the censure that the Appomattox County Republicans posted on their Facebook page with the document on their official Facebook page. And I'm going to quote from it, quote, whereas on October 19, 2020, during his appearance with CNN, Denver Riggleman made claims that he would consider voting for former Vice President Joe Biden for President of the United States, stating in that very interview that the actions of President Trump as irresponsible and and dangerous, as well as for refusal to denounce QAnon. Uh, That's the part. What First of all, for those listening, I have to ask you, define for us what QAnon is.
7: QAnon started not long after Pizzagate, and really it's a, it was a conspiracy theory that started as a deep state cabal or deep state coup against the president run by Democrats who happened to be Satan-worshipping pedophiles, and that's how they were funding this deep state cabal, almost similar to blood libel, anti-Semitism, like the Protocols of Elders of Zion. And QAnon has become sort of a conspiracy theory sticky bomb, whether it's NSA getting in the way of elections, whether it's martial law. Uh, being called for, whether it's uh, in Germany, uh, the United States attacking a barracks there or a building there to remove Dominion voter machines, it is a massive conspiracy theory. I want to simplify really- it, and I yeah, want to interrupt. Right. I want to interrupt. Sure, you use sure. the word no,
2: a sticky, uh, a digital sticky bomb. That's that's per- you know, I I still think that the, the <laughs> most um, no, I th- but I think it's it's clear. I would argue that it it provides horrific digital vertigo. To individuals unknowingly, clouding their vision. But but from a, a simple term, what is what is the infectious disease that is QAnon on the internet? Just just not not explaining the conspiracy theory. That's where people get confused. But what exactly yes. is it? It QAnon
7: is a conspiracy theory on the internet that's spread that way. Whether it's from the Chans or whether it's from say Twitter or anything like that, people on there, that says that there's a deep state coup. And then it attaches everything to this deep state coup or this deep state of cabal of deep state actors that are working against President And Trump. it's subtle. And, it, and it, that's it, the thing
2: that I don't think people yeah. understand, is that it's subtle. It's not you go on a certain website, you click it, and people believe it. It's logarithms. It attaches itself with tentacles very subtly, and it sucks you in down a wormhole. So how can Republicans and Democrats work together to stamp this out of America's intellectual discourse
7: it's going to take courage and it's going to take a lack of partisanship it's going to take a nonpartisan look at what's happening on the internet and how malignant it is and it's going to take people who are willing to not get reelected to go against massive groups of people who've been infected by this i mean it's that simple kevin and it's going to it's going to take a massive amount of analysis, but it's going to take a way to, to sort of overcome the algorithmic targeting uh, and, the, and the specific digital targeting of these individuals, but people who are trapped in these echo chambers and who are believing this. And I don't know where that courage is right now, but it's going to take, it's going to take an amazing amount of courage and facts-based sort of beating people about the brains with it, right, to get them to, to turn off on this craziness.
2: What, what can the private sector do? What does the private sector have to do?
7: Well, I'm doing it. I I joined the Network Contagion Research Institute, the NCRI, we're doing facts-based analysis using message traffic analysis, social network analysis, something called Pattern of Life, where we actually look at how the computer networks work. And what we're doing is we're privately funding this sort of facts-based way of trying to identify the conspiracy theories at their root. And I'll give you an example, Kevin. Obamagate, subpoena Obama. You remember that, how crazy yeah. that went back in May? That started on Reddit. 44 hours. 44 hours. 40 to 44 hours after start on Reddit. It bubbled up from the bottom using centers of gravity or critical nodes, people that actually push this, to where the president tweeted something completely ridiculous less than 48 hours after it bubbled up in the dark corners of the Internet. It is sophisticated. It is subtle. It is sophisticated. This is how it works. And, Kevin... You know, I've tried to use data to beat people about the face and shoulders. Like, listen, in a kind way, this is what we got to do. But we're to a point that we're going to have to get pretty brutal on how we identify these bad actors. We're going to have to drag these vampires into the sunlight digitally, and I'm ready to do that.
2: Stay with me, because coming up next, I want to get more of your reaction, Congressman Denver Riggleman, Republican from Virginia, outgoing congressman, about this. And we've got much more to talk about in terms of the future of Congress. What you know as a congressman, what needs to change about the institution in and of its and more about your future plans. Congressman Denver Riggleman joins us. He is, of course, a Republican from Virginia uh, and really has found himself as an emerging national voice uh, on these issues pertaining to digital security and the digital conversation. And and how did address the infrastructure. It's, it's so much more complex than just avoiding talking to your relative who has a different political party affiliation than you do. Stay with me, folks. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg
0: 99.1. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com.
1: You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
2: I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio, wishing you and your family a safe, happy, and healthy New Year. Congressman Denver Riggleman, Republican of Virginia, is with me. Outgoing Congressman. Congressman, what's your New Year's resolution?
7: Oh, my goodness, my New Year's resolution? To spend some time with my grandchildren. More time than I have.
2: Oh, that's awesome. So uh,
7: that's, <laughs> Yeah, that's my New Year's resolution. I got two brand-new grandbabies, and two weeks apart. Two of my three daughters had kids right next to each other, and so I've been spending a lot of time with them.
2: That's very awesome. Why should, why should there be a, why should hate speech be able to be spread on social media platforms when you rightfully cannot do so on a television network?
7: (laughs) Yeah, I mean that's that's been the question, right? Is is where does the First Amendment begin and end? And you know, I've had this discussion, Kevin. You know, me and you have talked about this. Is that I think the only way. that we can fight that is to use the First Amendment to our advantage, right? But the issue that we have, and, and I think this is where we get in with hate speech, is that, and, and, but it's not just hate speech, right? It's, it's beyond that. It's, it's actually sort of egregious uh, grievance politics based on conspiracy theories that are so outlandish they're hard to believe from sort of people that are living in a fact-based world right now. The issue is the number of ways— that you can mainline disinformation directly into your brain. And if you think about Twitter and Facebook, I was like, well, there's Twitter, there's Facebook, there's Instagram, or sort of the legacy platforms. But you also have Gab, you have Parler, you have BitChute, you have Rumble, Kevin, you have obviously YouTube, you have encrypted image ports, you have message ports, uh, you have people who use email. You know, You have all these electronic ways of spreading this information. And I think that's the fear that I have, is we're in a time now that there's never been so many ways to lock yourself into a digital echo chamber, and I don't know how to fix that right now.
2: Per, I do you think there's an educational component to this because if our generation, if baby boomer generation doesn't understand the digital infrastructure in which this hate speech is spreading, how can we educate the new the up and coming generation to be on the lookout for this?
7: That's a great question, because I was talking to somebody about, can we have a curriculum, either at the university level or at the high school level, that teaches disinformation? But I don't know if you, I think it's Sweden, and you might want to just make sure, I'm I'm trying to remember everything that I read. Um, Sweden, I think they have disinformation centers. and. Those disinformation centers actually go out and try to fight disinformation at the computer level, at the baseline level, the node level, the person right, who's getting fed this, this garbage. And I think we have to figure out as a country with 340 million people how we fight this garbage at the bit level. At the node level, where we attack it with everything we have with fact-based sort of information. But, you know, we're trying to figure that out. But I do think there's an education component at the high school level, I would say, and at the university level on how disinformation spreads in this network that we have today.
2: And listen, I'm not hardly is the mainstream media immune from criticism, especially political journalists of the current era. Uh, How do you tell... But how do you offer this? And if I'm struggling with questions, it's because I really believe that this is an important and delicate topic. How do you respond to someone on the left or the right who is scrolling through their phone and consuming what they feel is factual information? Maybe it's a meme. Maybe it's an article. How how do you dig past the impulse of consuming that information to educate that person to say, listen, this is actually being peddled by foreign adversaries.
7: Source. Source. You know, I find it interesting people will, um, even congressmen, I had a congressman say, my God, Denver, I did not know I retweeted a QAnon account, right? Wait, say that again. You had a
2: lawmaker in Congress tell you privately that they didn't know they retweeted a QAnon account. Go ahead. Let that sink in, folks. Go ahead. That is correct. That is
7: correct. And I've had a lot of people asking me, how do I stop this? How do I know this? There's one word that I hope everybody, if there's anything from this conversation, Kevin, here's the word. And you know it as a journalist. And when I say it, you're going to say, of course, because I was an intelligence officer. It's source. Sourcing. If you're scrolling and, and you're about to retweet that says gateway pundit, that's shite. Right? That's crap. You have to look at the source of where it's coming from. And when you talk about the media... You have the media has such an important role here. Bloomberg, major networks, cable, right? To absolutely report the truth regardless of the circumstances. And it's so hard. And, and, and you know, and I, and I was thinking about this when people say, well, why is a politician afraid of their base? You know, why wouldn't they say what's true no matter what? Just like media has to report something that's unpopular. Can you imagine me going to Appomattox County right now with 60 people in a committee meeting and saying, listen, the Kraken isn't real? I would be run out. People would be screaming and cursing and running me out of that meeting because they're so involved in this. It's the same thing with media. You have to look at the source. I I would I would humbly submit not just the first source, but the source beneath it. And that's what I try to do. Primary sources. Primary sources. You have to look at the source. And if it sounds funny, it probably is funny. And I've made mistakes. And I'll go back and admit it. Like I didn't source it all the way. I'm usually not wrong, right? But again, sourcing is so important. And if you make a mistake, you immediately correct it. And a politician won't do that because that's going to hurt their fundraising. But that's what you got to do. You have got to look at the source first in anything you're looking
2: at. You know, I. It's, Congressman Denver Riggleman's with me. I wanna. I want to move beyond that, and this is also a delicate question, but because you're 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 no longer going to be in office i I feel like you've been alive you've you've even been more chatty than even you were, and you were always pretty chatty but I, I I gotta ask you from an American perspective, these are issues that should unify us. This should be something that unites Republicans and Democrats. I'm not talking from the Cerulean soapbox. this should unite people, and yet because of our party structure, there are other countries, dare I say China. Where they have a hundred a fifty year plan, a hundred year plan. Does the United State, how does the United States get to an area of agreements where it's not centrism policies in terms of economics, but actually standards on something like this, for example, or five G, for example. That is an American strategy.
7: So i had a um I was I'm writing an op ed about that right now, and what I'm looking at is there has to be treaties or agreements with foreign countries on what disinformation looks like and how we combat it. also, when I was in the Pentagon, and sorry, you're in my wheelhouse right now, Kevin, I really enjoyed no, it I know uh, when Thank I was in the Pentagon when we were when we were talking about um how we how information is inserted into our critical infrastructure or if our critical infrastructure is attacked we need an offensive capability where it's almost i would say and and i'm not again this is this is things that are being discussed in the dod in the intelligence community but we need a non-proportional response to disinformation whether it's foreign or internal and that's really what it comes down to is our critical infrastructure, people that we love, you know, people that 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 we we respect. A lot of these people are being overtaken by this. But the thing is is that our critical infrastructure is all, all, also at risk. We can't become a country that's so dumbed down that we can't even have a discussion on policy. This is a ripple effect. It's a cascading effect of awfulness that starts with at the at the person level and sort of expands into I would say the infrastructure level. And I don't and – I, and I feel like right now is such an incredible time. Why aren't we, Kevin? Why aren't we mobilizing against conspiratorial gas bags like Mike Flynn who called for martial law, right, a retired three-star? Why aren't we doing that? Or Thomas McInerney who said that NSA implanted code into machines. Why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we mobilizing against conspiracy theories that said Joe Biden killed SEAL Team 6 or that Osama bin Laden had a body double? Or there's nuclear isotope watermarks on ballots? This is all unmitigated shite. It's bullcrap. But again, we have people pushing this for fundraising, for grift. They're destroying the American people and the confidence we have in our government. And we have got to turn it around now. There's not tomorrow. We've got to turn it around now.
2: Congressman Denver Riggleman, a Republican from Virginia, joining us uh, in his final days uh, serving in the United States House of Representatives. Happy New Year to you and your grandkids, Congressman. I'm Kevin Cerulli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.